uh, resolutions uh, on New Year's. How many of you would identify as being jaded and no longer make resolutions because you failed too many times? Okay, so I think that's everyone. What we're talking about this month is, is what it means to be resolute, to really have faith that finishes. And in the book of Hebrews, uh, what we're going to see is there's this first century urban people that are weary and really in danger of giving up. And uh, the writer to the Hebrews gives this um, incredible encouragement on what does it mean to have resolve? What does it mean to have grit? What does it mean to be able to fight through adversity to go and finish the race that we've been called to run? Because resolutions, um, believe it or not, even though our church seems to be anti-resolution, this is new for me, but resolutions are really common. And even if you don't make a formal resolution, like 80% of people who don't make a formal resolution have made an informal one with themselves, but they don't call it one because they don't want to break it. Did you know this? I'm going to start eating healthier. But we don't define that just so when we want to have ice cream, we have ice cream. But you know what? I think I'll work out more. But I'm not going to say weekly. I'm not going to say I want to lose X number of pounds. I'm just going to say I just want to live healthier. Resolutions are common. Resolve is not. Kids are dismissed. (laughs) Kids' resolution is common. I need you to hear that. Dismissing you in the new year is not. That was good. It feels lighter in here now. Something happened. Whoever started that, you get credit. Okay. Resolve is the ability we have as a people to push uh, through barriers, to persevere when life gets hard. Uh, Resolve is what builds skyscrapers or wins wars. It is what saves marriages. It is what displays Jesus. It's a willingness to be resolute, to stand firm. And so whether you've resolved to uh, lose your holiday pounds or have deeper faith or whether you're secretly holding back your resolution, you don't want anybody to know, but secretly I kind of want to do better at this next year. What we need to do as a people is investigate what does that look like? What does it look like? Uh, What does the scripture tell us to do? And then what are the big hurdles? What are the big drawbacks? What are the kind of the secret snares on the way to getting things done, on the way to finishing? What are the things that hold us back? And so in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so anytime we see the word therefore in scripture, we ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore, right? It's referring backwards to something. What are these witnesses? What are we talking about? Therefore, since we're in front of this great cloud of witnesses, who are they? Why do they matter? He's talking about those that have gone before them. Uh, He's speaking to Hebrews, right? To Jewish people who went before you in the faith. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, who are these heroes? And so Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12 is referring back to Hebrews chapter 11, where uh, the writer just goes through the heroes of the faith and says, remember what they did, remember what they persevered through, remember their faith. It paints the picture of this this packed stadium. I mean, they had stadiums, they had pseudo-Olympic games in a sense. And so you can imagine the writer tapping into the cultural uh, kind of sensibilities of his people going, imagine this packed stadium. But instead of it being filled with alumni or fans or whatever, imagine it being filled with all the people of the faith that went before you. And imagine them cheering you on. Imagine them encouraging you not to give up, to keep fighting, to keep going, to keep running. Imagine them who've been to the other side and know what awaits, 
challenging us to finish this side of the race well. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, look at what can be done. Hebrews 12 says, by faith, imagine what we might do. If you'll only become resolute, it's saying, you might have faith that finishes. Verse 1 uh, says two things right off the bat. It says, basically, uh, it says, let us run, which is to say, you, you don't finish what you don't start. Name the number of things you finished in your life that you never started. Thousand-piece puzzle sitting on the table. It would be fun to finish that. Unless you start, can you finish? I mean, it seems really obvious. But for a lot of us, we have dreams and goals and things we want to do, and we've never actually started working towards them. What he's saying is run. You're in, you're, you're in the arena. You have a choice. You can, you can compete, or you can be a spectator. And faith, the scripture will tell us, is not a spectator sport. Second thing it tells us, it says, lay aside every weight and sin, which is, uh, if we modernize that, it would say, don't look back. Don't look back. All the weights, all the sins, all the failures, they're there. But it says, lay them aside so that you might finish well, so you might focus on the thing that's in front of you. What does this mean? It sounds like uh, Romans 6 to me. So let me read that, and then we'll get into what that means. Romans 6, 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He's talking about us as people, our old selves being crucified with Christ, our old uh, fleshly sinful lives being up on the cross. And then we get a, a new self when we're joined with him. In verse 7, it says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, We believe that we also live with him, and we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again, so death no longer has dominion over him. And if we're with him, if death cannot beat Christ, and we are in Christ, can death beat us? No. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Explained this way, the human eye can focus on uh, one thing. Your eyes, you you can focus. So I'm going to stand here. And I'm going to say, can you focus on me and read the screen? If there was something on the screen, let's pretend. Greg, pretend. Anything. Kids are dismissed again. (laughs) What What does it take? Okay, so perfect. Just like I wanted. If you focus on me, can you can you read the screen at the same time while looking at me? Change your ideas. Look at the screen, and can you read my lips while you read the screen? Right. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy, but, but indicative of how our entire life works. The word priority, um, that which we now use as a plural, we have priorities. The word priority was coined in like 1400, and for 500 years, this idea of a priority, it meant the one main thing, and everything else was other. And then about the Industrial Revolution, right in the time when Americans um, and, and Western Europeans started really figuring out how this whole... Uh, you know, the Model T and the, the factory and the, the assembly line, and we can make more stuff if we'll just take this little piece. And the Industrial Revolution ushered in this whole other use of the word priority. And what we did is after 500 years of saying there is a priority and then other stuff, people started saying, no, 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 we have priorities. I have 19 things that are the most important thing in the world to me. I have 19 firsts. Priority means first. It's prior. It, it is the first thing. And yet, what we've done in our world is we still say, these are my priorities for the year. These are my priorities for my week. These are my priorities in my marriage. There is one. And everything else serves the first. 
And if we're not careful, we, we don't think about it that way. We just kind of lapse into it, and we, we get kind of delusional. And we think we can focus on three things at once. We think we can focus on the past and make progress in the future. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You either focus on the past or on the future. In the Romans 6 way, we either look at who we were when we were dead in sin or we look at who we are when we're alive in Christ. We get one or the other. So if the scripture says you're free from sin and you're no longer bound to it, it's as if uh, you were in prison and the prison door opens. When the prison door opens, if you've been set free, nobody would say it's great wisdom to sit and, and keep thinking about what you did. You've been exonerated, you're free. I know you were in prison, but guess what? You're out. You're free. Prison door swings open and you go, you know what? I just think I need some more time to think about what, what was behind me. Everyone would go, no. When, I mean, when the prison door opens, you run out in case they change their mind. Sit in the, in the cell when the door is open would be stupid. And yet, it's so common in Christians. Some of us are so focused on dying, we never actually get around to the living. We're so focused on what we did that we never actually stop to consider what we might do. I run into people all the time who say, you know what, I would serve in that thing, or I would volunteer for this ministry, or I would, I would talk to my neighbor about Jesus, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been, you don't know the things I've seen or the things I've done, or you don't, you know, if you knew, you would tell me to just get, I, I still got to work that out. And what the scripture is saying is, Christ died so the things that you've done can be put behind you, and the things he's called you to do can be your sole focus. Otherwise, we've wasted his death. If we're going to continue focusing on our own death, our own sin, our own flaws, our own failings, our own things that are behind us, then we've ignored what Christ did for us, which is to free us up and open the prison and say, go, run. Run with endurance the race set before us. Not reconsider the regret and sins laying behind us. Scripture says, run with endurance the race set before us. Future. It's be reconciled, not, not like ignore everything you've ever done and just blindly, you know, break things along the way and never say you're sorry. Be reconciled. Repent. Because, you know, to live unreconciled with others is to carry the past into the present and to allow it to poison the future. So be reconciled. If there's somebody in here that needs to be reconciled with another person in here, do that today. If you need to send an email, write a letter, if you need to talk to your spouse, whatever it is to do, if you have unreconciled hearts, well, that's a problem. You take an unreconciled heart, and that brings the past to the present, and it poisons the future. But once you're reconciled, you've repented, you've turned, you said, you know what, we're going to move forward, I got that behind me, then it's time to focus on what's in front of you. This is obvious, but looking backwards is not the way forward. If you can drive only using your rearview mirror, you deserve an award. No one does that. You couldn't do that. You take a loss in life. You stumble, you fall, you take a loss. What do you do? You learn. When we take a loss in life, our job is to learn from it, get what we can from it, and keep moving. To fixate on it is to ask for trouble. Because distraction is deadly. Anybody, uh, anybody here guilty of, of rubbernecking as a driver? Anybody? No one has ever, no one really admits this. People are like, no, not me. Other people do. They slow us down. But not me. I'm focused. There was a study, I looked really hard to find actual data because I wanted to just tell you that that's not safe, but I really, I did some deep dives here. In 2014, there was an actual study in Virginia. So this is not everywhere, but they're pretty representative. In 2014, in Virginia, 35% of crashes 
in the state were caused by a distraction outside of the car. 35% of the crashes in the state of Virginia in 2014 were caused by distraction outside of the car. Something not inside, of, something not in your, in your realm of focus causes the crash. Of those, 16% were crashes that were caused by looking at other crashes, which is embarrassing. Like two out of every 10 crashes you see occurs because they were looking at another crash. The surest way to end up somewhere you never intended to be is to take your eyes off where you're going. It is true in driving. It is true in life. The surest way to end up somewhere you never intended to be is to take your eyes off where you're going. No one means to end up as one of the 16% that crashes because they were looking at the crash. That's no one's like, I didn't set out to go to the grocery store and I end up in a fender bender because I was distracted. That's unintentional, accidental, but it's common. It's common because focus is hard. If focus were easy, we wouldn't even be talking about it. We would just be focusing our way through life. But focus is hard. It's hard. I mean, as a church, right, as a church, we have a mission to know Jesus and make him known. That is our focus. And the easiest thing for a church to do is forget about the focus and just do all kinds of fun stuff. Because focus isn't always fun. Discipline isn't always fun. One of the things that's the hardest thing for for teaching young pastors, young pastors that uh, I feel like I should still be one, and if you like to think of me as one, you're welcome to. And yet when I talk to new pastors, young pastors, one of the hardest things to train them to do is to say no. It's like impossible. What they want to do is say, yes, well, that's an opportunity, and that's an opportunity, and that's an opportunity. We should do it. Do more is better. And the reality is it's less but better. You're aiming for a focus. And there are a lot of cool things we could do. Some of you have experienced no from me already. There's a lot of cool things we could do. But some of them aren't covenant things. There's a lot of like neat things we can do, but some of them aren't necessary things. Because, because the church is beautiful and because there's a hundred churches in Bowling Green, guess what? We're not going to do everything best. And so what we have to do is focus on what we do best and then partner with other people who do those things best. And that's how we form like this actual perfect church. But if we try to do it all ourselves, we'll end up doing nothing well and everything mediocre. And then we'll look around and be like, why are we even doing this? Because none of it's being done well. Saying no is hard, but saying no is focusing. This is why uh, last year we handed out these cards. These cards on the one side have three little people on it, and those people you're praying for, people you want to invite to faith in one way, shape, or form. Invite them to a dance. Can I open the door to faith, even slightly? On the other side, it has these arrows. Who's leading me? Who am I walking with? And who am I leading? This biblical idea of discipleship. Why, do, why the card? Why not just say it and be done with it? Because odds are, even if you thought it was a really good idea in the moment, this is under your seat in your car. It's behind some coupons on your fridge. It's gone. Because it's hard to focus on this stuff. If we write it down, we have a little better chance. But the idea is if we write it down and we put it front and center and it's on the middle of your bathroom mirror, you might focus on it and you might keep your eyes on the prize, which is to know Jesus and make him known. This is our mission statement brought down into a little focus piece for every single person. And yet for most of us, we're excited about the next shiny thing that comes along. I was doing a research paper as part of my master's, and there was this major relief organization in the world today. An incredible, dynamic, I mean, billions of dollars in annual, uh, revenue's the wrong word, but donations that they then use. It started as a church. 
started as a, a little church in England. And now it's this pseudo-secular agency that just kind of does a little bit of everything. And you read all the accounts of how they got from, from here to there, how they got from a church to this secular agency that kind of takes on whatever. Nobody really knows. It's like, well, we were doing this good thing, and it turned into this other good thing, and then someone offered us a chance to do this other good thing, and we were doing all these good things. Well, what about the point of why you started? Well, that doesn't happen anymore, but, but, but it's good, right? Maybe, but it isn't what they set out to do. We have a subtle enemy. And if you don't believe you have an enemy, then you've got to turn on your kind of spiritual radar. And Scripture is clear, as believers, we have an enemy. But it's subtle. The best way to derail a church isn't a disaster, it's distraction. If you burn this place down tomorrow, guess what we're going to do? We're going to rally, we're going to be galvanized, we're going to come together, we're going to rebuild it, we're going to be, we're going to be excited. Something to do together, invite the community, it'll be on the front page of the paper, yeah. But if you distract us just a little bit, this place can go under like that. We so rarely think to defend against distraction because it's so subtle. C.S. Lewis wrote the book, The Screwtape Letters, around this idea that, um, there are ways, uh, the, the book is basically, to explain it, it's a, a, the devil and one of his henchmen, basically. And they have a person they're trying to get to, a man that they're trying to, to derail, someone they're trying to get off of the, uh, the path of faith. And in trying to figure out how to do that, they're going through all the different strategies that exist. How do, how do we get this person, this faithful person, off of the path of faith? So let me just read you an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's uh, Screwtape Letters. And this is the, the expert talking to the, the demon saying, how do we... How do we challenge these Christians and get them distracted? He says, you'll find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wondering attention. You no longer need a good book, or in our case, um, something important to do. What he really likes to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep, a column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. A website, a football game he doesn't actually care about. You can make him waste his time. Not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. Facebook. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. Or a screen that really has nothing for him. Nothing, he says, is very strong. Nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. In the gratification of curiosity so feeble that man is only half aware of them. In drumming of fingers and kicking of heels and whistling of tunes he doesn't even like. Or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them relish, but which, once chance association has started, the creature is too weak and befuddled to shake off. He goes on, he says, You will say that these are small sins. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from light and into nothing. He says, Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, with sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. What's the most dangerous way to fall away from your faith? 
What's the most dangerous way to get off of track on the mission that God has given us? Murder is great, but it's totally unnecessary if cards will do the trick. If being fixated on the new gadget that comes out this year, if being fixated on this hobby that that you really don't care about, but you you started it and you, you figure you might as well keep going. That thing that that keeps you from waking up early is the thing that keeps you up late. The reason I don't do my my devotion in the morning is because, you know, I just got consumed in this website late at night and, you know, it just happens. These are the things that that steal us. It isn't the big disasters, it's the little distractions, which is why the writer to Hebrews says, lay aside weight and sin, the dim labyrinths of reverie, Lewis calls it, the distraction and temptation that are designed to whisper and taunt to slow you, to tire you, to steal your focus. This is why you need endurance. If we are to be resolute, endurance is key. And endurance is not about the present. Today, you need resistance. But long-term, you need endurance. Endurance honors the past and works for tomorrow. Endurance honors the past and works for tomorrow. What What do I mean by that? He says, run with endurance the race set before us. So, most of us have, um, the easy thing to have anyway, is sprinter's faith. Sprinter's faith. We, we become resolved to do something better, something faster, something greater, or less of something else. We, we're resolved to that. And, and so we can accomplish it in short, disconnected bursts. We have sprinter's faith. I can start doing this devotional. I can kick this sin habit. I can whatever. We find our place. How many of us have ever had a, a resolution and quit in a number of days? John Acuff in his book, uh, Finish, that came out this last year, said 92% of resolutions are quit in the first seven days. 92% of people quit their resolution in the first seven days, which is why I'm kind of half skeptical when I ask how many in here have a resolution. Some of you didn't raise your hand because you already quit it and you're not going to admit that you ever had it. When you look into why people quit their resolutions, why people don't finish what they start, oftentimes the enemy is perfection. The first time you have ice cream when you're on the new diet or you miss the workout or you trip over the same old sin, you go, oh, what's the point? And we quit. So he would say that perfection is is not, the opposite of perfection is an imperfection. The opposite of perfection is finished. That in reality, the opposite of perfection is, is completing something. If you have the endurance to fight through failure. Because none of us think we're going to get through this life perfectly but if we, if we try, if that's the aim, then we won't get through this life well at all. You can get through and overcome failure if you are resolute enough to stay focused. Hebrews is about a bigger story. Right? Hebrews, is this, Hebrews 11 is this, the faith of Moses, the faith of Abraham. It's about a larger mission. Think about this. He's talking about thousands of years of faith of the Hebrews. In one chapter, he's referencing thousands of years of faith, the writer. He's telling them, if we are to be a people that endure, we are going to have to be big picture people. That it isn't about this day, it's about the thousands of years that went before you, and we have to be thinking about the thousands of years that go after you. And so if you had resolved in some way, shape, or form to lose weight, it is not about what the scale says on January 12th, it is whether you're going to be at your grandchild's fifth birthday. That's being resolute. It's having a picture that's bigger than this, it's this. If you're resolved to be better in your finances, it's not about avoiding getting the heat turned off in February. It's about being able to live a life that is generous when God calls you to be generous. Be resolute in parenting. 
is not about can I get through the next 20 minutes, but what do I want my child to look like in 20 years? And that's a different decision to make. That's a different matrix to think through. That's a different way to view the world. It's not 20 minutes or 20 days, even 20 months. What if every decision I made in my finances was was a 30-year decision? What if every parenting decision I made was a 30-year decision? What if every faith decision I made was a 30-year faith decision? This is marathoner's faith. This is different than sprinter's faith, this short burst of activity, and then we fall away, huff and puff, and try again later. Marathoner's faith is different. And as someone who has never run a marathon, I am the expert to tell you all about it. I'm impressed. How many have, have run like a half marathon? Let's start half marathons. Yeah. 5Ks? Whole marathons? Yeah. You know why, you know why everybody hasn't run a whole marathon? It's really hard, apparently. Did you know this? I'm, I'm shocked at the amount of training and planning and diligence and endurance that goes into even the getting up to the date of the marathon. And people are dieting, and they only eat this, and they only eat that, and they're doing something called tapering, which is just sounds painful. I don't even know what that is, but you just, you got to run more and then run less, and then you got to, I've seen people have a six-month schedule, and every day is mapped out the number of miles I need to run that day so I can be ready for this eventual day. And then they do the eventual day. You show up at race day, and what happens? The community rallies, and strangers are cheering for you, and, and for some reason it feels good. And then you hit the wall, apparently, which sounds painful, but I've been told it's not a physical wall, so we can all relax. That you hit the wall, and then what do you do? You push through. You have to get a second wind, and you pick up the pace again, and you work through that. Endurance is not about the present. Endurance is not about mile eight. In mile eight, you have resistance. I will not quit. Endurance is about something bigger. Endurance is that in mile eight, you are honoring the past, the six months of training. I didn't put in all that work to quit now. And the future, that I will get the finisher's medal around my neck at 26.2, and I don't care if it kills me. That's why people get through mile eight and mile 10 and mile 15. Not because in that moment they're like superstars, it's because they've put the work in and they're honoring the past, they're fighting for the future. Biblical endurance honors the faith of those who made a way for us. Biblical endurance then works for the prize that lays before us, the hope of glory in the presence of Christ. In a church that's been here almost 50 years, we have people we can immediately conjure up that have gone before us. Faithful people that have been a part of this community, part of this family, and that are now waiting for us on the other side. And if we imagine them and the bleachers cheering us on, I didn't know Moses, I didn't know Abraham, but I knew some of these others. I knew this one, and you knew that one. And if they're cheering us on, you can do it. Keep fighting. It's worth it. That, that little stuff, it's not worth it. What would they be saying? Scripture says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Christ Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This should be mind-blowing to us, that our faith is originated in Christ and perfected in Christ. That he who originates our faith is also the one that perfects it. The object of my faith is the author of my faith. That should just melt us. Not only that, 
But the object of my faith and the author of my faith decided to be the one who would make my faith real in enduring the cross. Took the penalty of our sin and shame. He took eternity's worth of separation. The fullness of our penalty, mine, yours, all of it. So that we might know eternity with him. And that eternity isn't at death. And this is key for us if we're going to be resolute, if we're really going to have faith that finishes, we have to understand that eternity doesn't begin when we breathe our last breath here. Eternity begins the moment we are included with Christ. And so the moment of belief for you was the beginning of your eternity. So eternity is now. This isn't the waiting room for heaven. It's not the waiting room for heaven. You've already crossed over. There is nothing to wait for. Eternity started at the moment of belief. You have gone from lost to found. You have already gone from death to life. And so are you living that out? Are you just biding your time until you can get off of this place and into that place? Eugene Peterson says that we have a divine opportunity to live as a colony of heaven in a country of death. We have an opportunity to live as a colony of heaven in a country of death. We are already citizens of heaven. We just happen to be planted here for a little bit longer so that we can invite other people in, so that we can welcome others into the light. Which brings us back to Romans 6. What then? Verse 12, let, us not, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Act as if you've already been brought from death to life because you have. Resolve to live in the new self, to walk away from the prison of past mistakes, to walk away from the death that comes with distraction, into hope and peace and purpose, into the race that's set before us. Are we spectators in the arena or are we competitors? Are we content to let other people live out our faith for us? Or are we the ones dirtied in the arena, willing to do what it takes to bring a colony of heaven to a country of death? Verse 13 says, present yourselves to God. How do we live out this life? Present yourself to God. So I know it is a new year, and so maybe there's a new opportunity. Maybe you're in the room and you say, you know what? I could do that kind of faith, but I've never done it before. I've never actually presented myself to God. I've never actually said, yeah, I want to be a part of this. And today is your opportunity. There's no uh, formal anything you have to do. But scripture would say that if you believe, that if you would surrender and follow, then you're included in that. That Christ's salvation extends to you when you accept the gift that he offers through faith. And so if that's you, in your heart of hearts now, you can cross the line from death to life and say, I will live that faith. And maybe I've been faking the faith for a long time and I'm not faking it anymore. And you can do that. Other people are on the sidelines. You say, you know what? If I'm honest and I look back and I did an audit of my last year, yeah, I've, I've kind of been on the sidelines of faith and I don't want to be on the sidelines anymore. Well, then your resolution, I just gave you one, is to get in the game, to run the race, to figure out what does it mean to live an active faith, to live out eternity now. 
that means you need to serve, then serve. If it means you need to start giving, then give. If it means that you need to meet with somebody and be discipled and figure out what is this Jesus even all about, then let's figure that out. I got an email that's easy to remember. Kyle at bgcovenant.org. And it's open. And if you had any question whatsoever, any request, any how do I do this, any what does this even mean, I want that email. Because I want to walk with you through that. I want to talk with you through that. I want to connect you to our elders and let people who have great wisdom who've been doing this for 40 or 50 years say, welcome to the family, welcome to the journey, and let's do this together. May we resolve to be finishers. We have to first start. But may we be people who don't look back, but who run forward with endurance. Honoring what goes behind us and excited about what comes before us. May we be people who finish what we start and focused on Christ with every step, that we would live out our mission to know Jesus really well, and then to make him known in this community really well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are uh, your children. In this moment, it should be humbling I'm humbled that you sought to find me in death. You sought to uh, send your son to join me in this country of death and to welcome me into a colony of heaven, to welcome me into true life. Father, thank you for uh, the glory of that, the joy that we get to be able to live in it now, and the challenge that it is to uh, truly be people of faith when everything that is offered to us by this world is a tiny distraction to lead us astray. God, our prayer as a people is that we would be finishers, that we would be in the race, we would be running with our best might, that we would not be sprinters but marathoners. So God, I would pray that you would give us the endurance we need, give us uh, the discipline we need. Father, cause us to be a community that cheers each other on in this moment so that no one gets left behind, that no one sits on the sidelines, but all together we know you better and we make you known even clearer in this community that is still caught in the country of death that is still sitting in the darkness. God, may this be a beacon of light that doesn't stay here, but that sends hundreds of beacons out into this community, changing lives, transforming eternities. Father, give us resolve in the new year. May we be resolute to follow you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.